0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Palladium podcast. Uh, it's Ash Milton here, managing editor at Palladium magazine. Uh, I'm pretty excited for today's topic. We're going to be talking with Eric Howell about aristocratic tutoring and uh, why we don't seem to produce geniuses anymore. Uh, the, you know, This is something I think we've discussed in various ways before, um, even on some of our digital salons uh, from the last couple of years. Uh, but I think this in particular is an interesting model because uh, you know, as you'll see in the discussion, it uh, it probably affects how we think about tutoring our own children or, you know, children in our families. So I think it's a very practical discussion in addition to the the sort of social analysis. So Eric, welcome to the show. I'm glad we could have you.
1: Yes, thank you so much. Excited to be here.
0: So uh, in terms of Eric's background, Eric is research assistant professor at Tufts University. Uh, he's also got a, a novel out. This is your first novel? but It way. is. Okay. And the novel is The Revelations from Overlook Press uh, and Abrams Books. That came out in 2021. And uh, you can read the piece we're going to be discussing on Eric's Substack, uh, The Intrinsic Perspective. The URL for that is erichowell.substack.com. Uh Eric, is there anything more you'd like to bring up uh, or, or maybe just explain what you're doing with your Substack?
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think, first of all, I think Substack, in particular, offers a very exciting sort of platform for the people who want to write and want to reach an audience. I mean, particularly due to the sort of frictionless nature of of how it operates Um, and it's very easy for people to sort of sign up for, for emails and so on. And I used to write for, you know, big organizational outlets like The Atlantic or The Baffler um or or you know the daily beast and i would try to basically you know write an essay the process was effectively that you you have to write an essay then you have to pitch the essay to you know a host of editors and by the time you're done with that process half your time has been spent pitching and then despite you know the pieces having being successful it's not like i was building an audience or anything so Moving all my writing over to Substack, uh, at least for, for what I'm going for, has been very successful. And that, you know, I, I now sort of have a built in audience of readers who, who I absolutely love. They always give great comments and feedback. And it's just a lot more exciting to be sort of, uh, you know, pr- producing content online. I mean, uh, one thing is th- that I always say is that writers should go where the action is and I'm someone who actually grew up in an independent bookstore. Uh, so I love books, right? Like I, I sold books for a living for years, right? So, so I don't really say this lightly, but the simple truth about contemporary society is that when people wake up in the morning, they pick up their phones. They don't pick up a book, right? And they'll, they'll read on their phones. And the thing is, is that yes, like they'll check social media posts, they'll check like, you know, all the sort of like quotidian trivia of the day. But they'll also read like a 5,000-word essay right there with their head on the pillow. So if you can capture that and direct the internet's attention towards perhaps the things worth attending to, or at least that that can be your goal, then I think it can be quite powerful. So that's a huge part of what I'm after with this Substack is just to sort of, um, you know, create a space for particularly the more uh, sort of literary and scientific approaches to all sorts of you know, different subjects.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, even speaking obviously as editor of a magazine, we we do use Substack as well. And I think that g- getting in front of people in a more personal way, uh, so like we use it for a newsletter. Uh, and so getting in front of people in a more personal way is very useful. Uh, I, I think, you know, and, and in a way this might lead us into your initial uh, article uh that we're going to be your essay rather that we're going to be discussing uh but what i find useful about the magazine format is that we're actually able to get people who often have very deep knowledge of of a kind of you know a broad enough field that they can write lots of different things about it and investigate topics and we can bring those people together and uh, that's you know obviously as a magazine that's the like the the synthesis element of uh, what what we're trying to do here, um. So maybe this yeah let's why don't we go into the essay that you wrote originally uh, and kind of kick it off from there. So the the thing that Eric got um, my attention on your Substack was an essay you wrote in March I believe it was called Why We Stop Making Einsteins. And you have an interesting thesis here uh, that tutoring and a, specifically this kind of aristocratic form of tutoring, rather than the kind of you know specialized form most people have today, had something to do with it. So, do you want to just uh, kind of recap what is your basic thesis here? What are you you know What is your model of why we don't make geniuses?
1: Sure, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that when when you look historically. We have to face the facts that, particularly, you know, from the 1600s to the 1800s, um, uh, the, the places where a lot of very like world famous sort of geniuses are being produced—names uh, that we would still know today—at um, the time, the intellectual life was dominated by the aristocratic. It was, it was, it was totally in this sort of aristocratic mode. Um, Basically, and I say this with, you know, some some caveats, but like, effectively, all the intellectuals were aristocrats. And that's normally explained, I think, very reasonably, by pointing to the fact that, well, these are the p- people who had the leisure time to go out and do things like invent science, right? So, so this is a, this is sort of the, the standard definition. But I, I can't help but notice when looking at names of the past. And this is, again, based on sort of, you can base it sort of in your own anecdotal understanding of things, but there are plenty of other people who've who've written about this issue. And as a simple example, um, pretty much everyone now knows that like polymathy is significantly reduced compared to how things were. Um, There's, there's a huge host of examples that, that you can take. Of people who, you know, throughout history were, um, you know, j- just just doing work in a host of different fields. Um, and not only just poly- polymathy, but of course, like the scale of advances uh, has decreased as well. And I think, again, there's another sort of very reasonable explanation for this, right? Which is that ideas are getting harder to find. And so we should think of ideas. Uh, maybe both scientifically, mathematically, but also in the humanities, as being sort of mineable in a certain sense. And this is, again, the standard explanation. So that's getting it's getting harder each time to like make a new advance in physics. And so, of course, we would see less, you know, Einstein's or, or, or less Newton's or, you know, less of any sort of really big name that that we want to give. Um, and so again, I think that there are th- th- these positions are all reasonable. But my, my question is, w- when I went to go write this essay was, is there sort of a third factor that people really are not paying attention to or, or haven't considered? And I think the reason I would consider that is that, just to put my cards on the table, I'm not really a genetic determinist. And I think that there's a certain, it's, it's not that I don't think that, that that genes matter or any of these things. But I think that there's a, a certain sort of hyper rigorous sort of genetic determinism that's very popular, particularly popular online, of people who think that, you know, effectively parenting has no effect on children, that education effectively has no effect on children, and that children are basically these hardwired you know creatures and whatever the final outcome is that's what the final outcome will be and we're all kind of living under this illusion and they're basing these sort of claims off of you know very uh maybe not questionable studies but but oftentimes sort of the lever the level of rigor and analysis and reproducibility that people demand of other things suddenly like don't apply to say whether or not iq continuously scales with you know uh salary or something like that and whether how to what degree is iq genetic and things like that and so it's not that i and so because i'm i think that actually education can matter and does matter um i began to wonder whether or not there was really significant historical differences between the education of people that nowadays basically everyone would consider universally to be a genius in the in the essay itself i use the example of bertrand russell you know who won the nobel prize in literature he was also invented Russell's paradox, which is basically the liar's paradox, but in set theory. And he his work kicks off the beginnings of the the earth shaking, uh, you know work work of someone like Gödel. Um, he's 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 one of the best, most brilliant philosophers and mathematicians of the age. And he was you know heavily tutored. Uh, he didn't attend regular school. He was heavily tutored because he was he was an aristocrat. And Bertrand Russell, by the way, is I'm forgetting what his exact dates are, but probably late 1800s to I don't know 1950 or, or 1960 when he when he dies. Um, and he's sort of one of the last aristocrats, right? You can um, and and but but he's such sort of a, a great genius, and his his domain spans so much. And he also wrote a brilliant autobiography that where he sort of details his his life, and then he talks, of course, about his his many tutors and his governesses and you know all these people were basically raising him and taking care of him yeah, and he's it, like
0: one of the last I guess in being raised in this Victorian mode of education where there was still a lot of room for the the kind of aristocratic tutoring that it sounds like you're uh, trying to center on here um, like my I mean I'd be interested to hear my sense is that part of the distinction, right? Today, you look at tutoring, and it's sort of people pitching systems of learning. Um, and my sense is that this, the traditional form is, you know, without overstating it, a little more art than science in in the way it's approached. It's, it's like you, okay, t- just take someone who has clearly achieved a lot of progress in a certain field, and have them teach their methods or their way of thinking to students. And, you know, it's, it's like, not really overthought beyond that, or or at least the mode of teaching is sort of left to the person who has demonstrated that they understand their field very well. Um, it's not that universalizable outside of that particular context. Do do you think that's about that's a correct way of looking at that mode of tutoring?
1: Yes, it's I think it's both substantially different from contemporary tutoring. Um and and it's 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 different in multiple ways. So one, one, one way is that it's it's not teaching to a test, so it's not based on measurables, right? It's, it's not like uh, Bertrand Russell's tutors were trying to, you know, keep him at the same, you know, grade level, and they were just homeschooling him out of a textbook. That is absolutely not at all what was happening. Uh, a completely different approach. It, it's kind of like the ideal approach of, like... Um, you know imagine that you're a you're a young mathematician or a young scientist and you want to get a child super interested and knowledgeable about these fields that you're super interested and knowledgeable about like how would you go about doing that forgetting everything about that they're going to get tested forgetting everything about grades forgetting everything like that um and we we can recognize that this is a relatively ideal situation i mean like who who among us does not feel that maybe if we had been given you know a host of of tutors and governesses teaching us multiple languages as we were growing up that we wouldn't at least you know that, that we wouldn't like sort of objectively come across as, as more intelligent than we than we currently are and uh, and i think that that's quite reasonable and when when you look at how they used to do this tutoring i mean as you said it's often expert based so like some, one of russell's tutors was lord kelvin's uh uh, student like like graduate student right so like like that kelvin like kelvin right so and also note lord kelvin right like another aristocrat aristocrat. and uh and 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 so you can just imagine this would be like if 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 your child was being tutored by one of the by one of the bright graduate students from one of the best physics labs you know in the country and and they're and they're not being like trained for the SATs or prep for the physics AP test. They're just having like long interesting conversations about physics and going over basic basic physics notation. And they're just like teaching them. Um, and I think that we, we all recognize that this would be like completely ideal. But of course, the problem is that this this isn't scalable. Right. It's a it's a totally unequal form of education. Um, like viciously on uh, unequal right I mean there's there's absolutely no way that you could provide the host I think I give an example of, of Marcus Marcus Aurelius uh, the the Roman emperor who had like 17 tutors growing up right <laughs> and there's there's no way we can provide 17 tutors right and he's like he's 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 one of the best emperors right he's, he's incredibly wise he's he's also a great philosopher right great statesman great great warrior right so he, and you know, again, you can say times were, were, were very different, uh, like very obviously, but perhaps sort of this, this mode of education played a significant role in what many of these people were able to, to accomplish. And we've simply sort of lost it today by having tutoring being only something that you do for like the SATs.
0: Right. Well, and I guess to be clear, right, the reason, you know, I, I could see people being like, oh, well, today, though, you know, those tutors, each one could have like a YouTube channel or, you know, Coursera courses. And so they could do, but that that's not actually what's going on, right? It, it's, it's that relationship between two people who know each other in real life, who know each other well or, or in sort of, you know, master and student terms but very familiar terms like there there's a two-way relationship there and that's the thing that makes it unscalable and why it you know my my sense is that the the online professor model or whatever can that is not the same thing as aristocratic tutoring even if you know People sometimes try and brand it as this this replacement of the old educational paradigm, but it's it might be digital, but it's still sort of mass education and by nature of the medium, it's standardized right It's like at best maybe you have a few private members of your thing that you have a more personal relationship with, but that even that then you're still working with like classroom level populations um there's the fact that it depends on this two-way relationship, that's the limiting factor on scaling this to some kind of huge level.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I i want to say I'm, I'm pro people trying to maybe think about ha- how to do like a, a startup, you know, where maybe you do start off doing stuff that's way more elite and one-on-one and you figure out some way to try to scale that. But I, I, I think in general, like you're absolutely correct. The social aspect of, of, of particularly like aristocratic tutoring is is really what's missing? Like Bert, Bertrand Russell is not just hanging out with kids his own age, um, right? He, he's he's hanging out with Lord Kelvin's graduate student, and these are the people that he's he's spending significant time with. So, um, you know, I I I think that there's there's very good reasons to think that these that this sort of unreplicable experience that. Is is really very difficult to to achieve today. Um, there's good reason to think that it was highly influential to to all these people, and uh, so yeah. So, so so I think, but but I think if you look at contemporary tutoring, what you immediately notice is that it's it's totally based towards the test. And by the way, I've had tutors contact me, um, you know, since the publication of this because it sort of went viral, uh, and say. I've been tutoring for 15 years. I tutor the children of the elites. In 15 years, one to two people have ever asked me to do anything that might look like aristocratic tutoring. Interesting. So so we really just like do not seem to be doing this anymore. And it's sort of, and and just to to, to make one more note, which is that this is backed up empirically in that it is well known in the education field that the strongest effects um, are based off of one-on-one individualized tutoring. Um, it's called, uh, Bloom's two Sigma problem because you end up two, two Sigmas away, right? Like you end up more, six, su- the, the tutored students are something like 90% more successful than, you know, non-tutored students. Uh, but it's totally, totally unscalable. Um, and that's, that's for specific markers. Like that's for tests. That's for like, cause, cause otherwise, how are they, how are they? um sort of measuring this right they're they're they're, they're, even in those cases they're looking at observables but if you sort of generalize from those specific results like how much tutoring can improve chess scores and you think about how much can tutoring like just improve the sort of output of an education in general i think the answer is probably extremely high
0: Well, and and I think uh, you made a point earlier about the IQ aspect. So, you know, I I could see a pretty simple critique here where it's like, well, the people who are most likely to receive this kind of elite level of education are ones who, uh, you know, these people are correlated with having higher IQs or among the highest IQs. And that, that sort of explains it. And it seems like there's at least two problems there. Because for one, you know, those people have descendants today and those descendants are kind of participating in this decreasing genius problem so even if you want to be a hard hereditarian on IQ clearly there's still something happening there where whatever latent talent might exist is not being utilized um
1: yeah it's but, a, it's a great point i mean i i hmm. think i think the the reason i i give a sort of a thought experiment or, or point out that there is a sense in which we conducted a massive experiment on the nature of genius um, and the nature of um, you know how culture produces golden age or great works or great discoveries. Uh, and we, we conducted this experiment sort of without thinking about it or knowing about it, um, although people did write it very originally about this, which is that with the advent of the internet, you know, we went from in 1985, you effectively could only, only a tiny sliver of the globe could access knowledge at a high level. Um, And then even then it wasn't free and it wasn't equally distributed, right? Like even just doing research in a library was so much harder in 1985 and then, or even 1990 or even 1995. And then finally you get within 15, 20 years, you have it such that effectively if you wanted to, you could become an expert on any subdomain of science that you wanted, right? Like you could you could go online and you could just read the scientific papers. Uh, they're, 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 most of them are, are you can find, right? Uh, you can learn mathematics if you want to do it via YouTube tutorials. You can access any of the great texts, right, that, that you want. So we, we sort of completely stripped away access as this sort of limiting factor. And if it was just the case that genius was like a function of some, something like IQ or so something that's like biologically, somewhat biologically determined, then we should have seen like an efflorescence of genius. We should have seen a cultural golden age as we, it, it's like if, if in 1995, you said in 10, next 10 years, we're gonna hand everyone on earth a USB chip and a screen and that contains all of the world's knowledge in all sorts of interesting ways. They say, wow, this is this is going to be a wild ride. Like, I can't wait. Things are going to be so different, right? Imagine like all the children who are Einstein's who don't have access, right? And then none of that really happens, right? And this is also at the same time that racial and gender barriers are, are thundering down right across across academia, right? Like, it, it's, it's simply a fact that the world today is so much more accessible uh, than the world was in, in 30 or 40 years. And I don't think ideas got harder to find during that exact period of time to the degree that it would warrant uh, like counteracting that. Like, I don't think ideas are so significantly harder to find in 1995. Oh, sorry. In, in today's world than in 1995. And yet again, we, we don't see this, this sort of cultural golden golden age. So it's like, we, yeah. You geniuses have ideas to be constructed. More easily,
0: right. Hub and, and, and so on. Yeah. Like, you know, pirating ideas has always kind of been this unspoken part of how a lot of this stuff works, and even that has become more accessible. Um, But it it seems like one of the things that has changed is, you know, especially on the kind of amateur level, uh, let's call it, like, working groups, you know, and I'm thinking here about how uh, earlier, you know, even at the start of, like, what we think of as modern science, you have things like the Royal Society um, these and you know the the level of collaboration you have uh, in philosophy and physics in mathematics um, you know obviously in academia that still exists to a degree although my sense is that be you know because of just the oversupply in a sense of, of, of PhDs and because of the structure of academia a lot like that has been sort of disciplined as well right it's you have the publisher parish pressure you have competition for tenure positions it seems fairly difficult even in academia to create these like very functional long term high trust working groups between people in a field and then you know on on the amateur side of that people have access to a lot more information but how many people now actually form the kinds of high level deep research groups you know th- there's some people in like computer science who who do this who i've seen Um, you know, certain kinds of art, but especially things like industrial science, um, that's super rare to see. But even in in industry, right, I I think there's this aspect of the industrial revolution, even where you can see something similar to what you see in the hard sciences, where, uh, you know, like Edison's labs was an example of this, right? So you have Ford coming out of Edison's, um, you know, Edison's company, learning from Edison on a very personal level uh, later on, you know, you have Taiichi Ono, uh, who creates the Toyota production system. He he learns from in the Toyota Corporation, and he also studies very in-depth, you know, Henry Ford's work. There, there, there are these like lineages of practice and of teaching that exist even in industrial engineering in the same way that they exist in science. And, you know, from my perspective, it seems like that kind of very long-term collaborative working group is extremely rare now, right? At least in the forms that they, they existed in, even in the early 20th century. Do, yeah. do you sort I, of see the same thing I, here? Or?
1: I, I, I agree. Like So just to give my own experience, I mean, I, I was very lucky to be part of such a working group. I mean, I spent my graduate days, I have a PhD in neuroscience, and I spent my graduate days working very closely with uh, Giulio Tononi who's one of the world's leading neuroscientists. And we were working on what's called integrated information theory, which is Mm. the first sort of formal mathematical theory of consciousness. Um, And I I was there for, you know, five and a half years. And um, certainly one of the things that it taught me was how to think because I saw thinking. I actually saw it occurring Um, and that is something that most people don't get to see extremely high level thought occurring and they don't get to see examples of that and they don't get to participate in that. And that was an absolutely incredible um, experience in terms of the amount of sort of influence it it had on me and my own thoughts about how to construct theories and how to say something interesting. Um, and, and, And you're absolutely right that the graduate school system is one of the last vestiges Of the tutoring system, Um, and I think we'll we'll probably get to this later. But if you look across education, it used to even be that even formal schools would be consist mostly of tutors. Mm -hmm. So um, you have this like. Why don't we elaborate
0: on that now? Can 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 you dig into that a bit? um, Yeah, absolutely. Like it's it's
1: even it's even it's hard to understate how predominant or awash with tutoring culture was. Um like if you take someone like Newton you know who, who grows up poor and Newton's an interesting case because um, I have not really been able to figure out what he was doing before he was before he was 12 but he wasn't in regular school so perhaps he was being homeschooled. Um, but um, he goes to basically a somewhat regular school from like 12 to 1617 and then when he's 1617 he goes over to um, Cambridge and at the time, the Cambridge system, there were no lectures lectured had ceased to exist. And the only thing that existed were tutors who worked who worked with the students one-on-one. Um, and so the entire system would, w- was tutoring-based. Um, and I mean, that's, that's astounding, right? Like imagine a college now where you go to and every class is, the, the class size is one, right? Like it, it's completely unimaginable in today's world, right? Like Harvard's average class size is still like 12 or 13. But that's that's really sort of you know jiggling the numbers because the really big classes are are hundreds of people right so you just you just cannot get this experience anymore and so so like education itself was was changing so you know if if someone looked at Newton um, and said well they you know th- this person was poor so they weren't an aristocrat and they're one of the great geniuses so doesn't this contradict the theory it's like well look at what was going on in the culture all around them. And that's that every, almost everything was based off of tutoring. Many of these geniuses made their living tutoring people, right? So the, the there's so much tutoring going on. It's like almost, it's like almost like a joke, right? Like these people are not
0: going to write about it. You're not going to point it out necessarily because it's just part, like you, pe- people aren't going to recount the curriculum from their grade five math class because why would you, right? People basically know what you learned there.
1: It's, yeah, it's, I, it's commonplace and I think it's and then and then also there's the case of governesses who were even more popular with the aristocracy than that than tutors were. And we don't even count governesses as tutors, but of course they were right. Um, they were often there teaching the, the child languages or, you know, at the time, what was considered sort of the more feminine arts. Um, but those are all very intellectual things. Right. Languages, music, this sort of thing. Um, and, so
0: should we think of governesses as providing something like the elementary level of education and tutors, you know, the kind of academic tutors you are talking about as the higher education? Yeah, is, precisely.
1: That's what mm-hmm. that's what I think is is the best model. Although of course the governesses, in terms of languages, you know, they would often last until the child was you know ten or, or so on or, or even older. But um, you know, if 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 you're looking historically as well, you you see you you even see cases where you know a lot of people have heard of the grand tour which is when the european aristocrats would go around and they'd sample the different cultures and they and they'd uh, and they sort of partake of the local scene and it was something that basically all the young aristocrats did and i didn't know this before writing the piece but when i was when i was investigating it i found out that it was tradition among the grand tour that it, there's a chaperone and the chaperone of the chaperone of the the young aristocrat and the chaperone was a tutor always a tutor, like generally their tutor, like the person who, who has been with them, but occasionally some people would have to like hire an outside tutor and then the tutor would take them on the grand tour, this like mercenary tutor. So um, if, you, if you think about like how, you know, uh, unremarked upon, um, how, how sort of unremarked upon this sort of thing is, I think it indicates that they were living in sort of a very different society, particularly... Uh, on, on sort of the upper echelon, because again, I think there's no there's no hiding that this is this is unfair. I mean, I sort of had a debate with myself about whether or not to try to make it sound slightly more more fair in the hopes that people would sort of attempt it in the future uh, by calling it something like slow tutoring. Rather than right. like aristocratic tutoring, but, but I figured to just it's be it's honest. Not quite,
0: yeah, yeah, it's well, and this is something that I think um, it's it's kind of a problem when we think about how knowledge, even how wealth, is is generated. Because, and I would even say that this is a, a way of maybe critiquing like some of the biases on the hard hereditary side. It's like families don't work in these, you know, hard one or the other models right no no high iq family is just letting their kids run around unschooled all day long uh you know they're they're usually putting even more effort into you know bringing up their children in a certain way um and you know we we actually uh it should be published by the time this episode comes out one one recent piece we've done is looking at the uh chinese uh jinshi family so the families that you know they they had uh, imperial bureaucrats who had passed the, you know, these high level Confucian imperial exams. And there's this interesting thing that you see in China that, um, you know, these families, even after modernization happened, these families would sort of outcompete the general public. And in the Maoist era, they get persecuted heavily and their property gets confiscated. But then in the reform period, they, they are now like today outpacing the general population again and it's hard to say why you know you can kind of give like social and hereditarian accounts of why that is but definitely one of the things that we know ex- happens in those families and happened traditionally is that you know it wasn't a nuclear family it was effectively a clan level you know group and 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 so the cultural practice was to kind of identify talent in among children in the rising generation and effectively divert resources to those children and, you know, and obviously people might see this as unfair in a certain way, but it it allowed those families to endure, you know, for, for centuries sometimes. Uh, it allowed them to endure through modernization and Maoism. And, uh, you know, clearly looking at the accomplishment of a lot of these individuals, both, you know, in terms of intellectual work and in terms of economic work, Um, there was something functionally working there, right? So I I think that there's this, let's call it like orthogonality sometimes between the question of what is functionally working in terms of adding to knowledge and in terms of even causing certain families to, like Darwin's family, who I know you mentioned uh, in one of your posts on this, like Darwin's great-grandfather is already involved with, you know, these sort of early enlightenment scientific work. Um, this family just kind of continually each generation seems to produce people who are contributing massively to the field of knowledge. And, you know, that that seems important for how we think of what are the causes of society gaining in knowledge and wealth. And there's this other set of questions about how, you know, how do you fairly give people access and opportunity. But the, these actually are somewhat distinct questions. And that's, that's maybe morally troubling in some ways, but you know, it's sort of, there it is, this is what we have to work with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely an is idea rather than an ought idea um, that, that maybe, you know, uh, aristocratic tutoring is like really fundamental to making geniuses. Um, because of course, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to advocate for anything like that today. But I, I do point out, you know, in, in the piece that um, you know, the, the, the rich sequester their, their children regardless, right? They just sequester them into, into you know, elite private schools. And the elite private schools really have no different structure than public schools. Um, indeed, like, you can look at class sizes, and they're often, like, not, not very different in terms of average class size or so on. But, of course, all the peers are sort of also from the elite upper crust, so they're generally sort of you know, less likely to, to get into trouble or, or so on. And, um, and and the rich are very happy to send them to these these private schools. Um, and I just can't help but think that, like, it, it's probably, it's it, it doesn't actually seem that much more unfair for them to be, like, privately tutored from a young age. Because then, at least as a society, we're getting geniuses out of it, right? We're not just getting, you know, cookie-cutter, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a, like, cookie cutter over Kids or, or
0: something. Yeah, well, co- I mean, co- to be a little even harsher about it, cookie cutter, like midwit successes, right? Like, like it, it, in a sense, when we're talking about contributing to knowledge, it, it's sort of inherent in that is someone is receiving this tutoring, but then, you know, breaking in a significant way from what they have just learned or yeah. challenging it in some important way.
1: And I think it's I think it's worth you know I kind of end on this uh, this this note of of what we really did was transform education into a system of mass production, and that is very important, right? Like it it allows for aspects of democracy, for aspects of uh, equality that you could never get if you kept education as this artisanal process, but. The simple truth is, is that mass produced things sometimes just aren't as good as things that are made by hand, right? They, they're they not as beautiful, they're not as elegant, they're not as well put together, you know? Like, it's like, you know, a standard office chair versus like a chair that you you know, your grandfather made by hand, which was gonna still be around in another 100 years, right? Um, and so similarly, I mean, I think that there's a very real sense in which our, Current intellectuals are effectively these like mass-produced, cheaper versions of of old school aristocrats, and um and and these aristocrats would like if they were somehow you know brought into the modern day and and updated with all of the knowledge and so on that they would need right so you have this huge knowledge gap but like that they would like massively outcompete all of these people um they would massively outcompete me right they, they massively outcompete all of us because they they were just built different. I mean, that's what happens when you have amazing mathematicians teaching you math from the time you're six years old to the time you're 12 years old, one on one. Like, of course, you're going to be a great mathematician.
0: Right. It'd be interesting to take someone who, you know, a Darwin or someone really accomplished in those fields and throw them into some completely new field of knowledge like computer science and sort of tell them, oh, okay, we're not going to tell you how we learn the stuff in our society. You go in and like figure out how you're going to learn what goes on here and then like, you know, see what you get out of it in in two years or something. And, you know, it, it... presumably what they would do if they're operating on the the tutoring script is like, okay, I'm going to find all the most successful, you know, people doing uh, computer science work, and I'm going to sit there and talk to them for like, you know, however long until I understand what they're doing. And um, it's, uh, that that's, I mean, obviously, again, these kinds of mass courses are very popular now, but that's still a very different thing, you know, and I think computation is interesting you know we we actually published recently a piece on this topic where um computer science seems to be in this this interesting stage in its development where kind of you know 98% of people going into it are now learning coding and and doing research in in a fairly familiar format and you can find these like weird projects on the side where it's like oh we're going to go back to empowering the user uh, or or we're we're gonna avoid the screens and we're gonna do you know kind of old school card you, you know computing There, but they're these weird tiny projects, right and so it's like the the paradigm has been established and it's fairly hard to see at this point how you can push paradigm changes whereas in you know in in the 80s and 90s paradigm changes seem to be happening fairly often. Uh, in in computer science, so I, I mean, I'd be interested to hear. I don't know if you use the paradigm change concept a lot and how you think about this stuff. But do you, do you sort of think that basically we do not see those as much, and and that's kind of the same, like that's the same thing, kind of, as the the decreasing geniuses problem where knowledge doesn't update effectively.
1: Yeah, it's it's tough because like obviously there are multiple factors going on here. Like I, I you would have to be completely naive to not say that there's at least some sense in which ideas were easier to find in the past. Um, I think the argument that ideas are harder to find now, uh, to some degree, like again just to some degree, just almost has to be true. Certainly if you think about scientific knowledge, um, it seems as if there's sort of a set of really interesting facts or hypotheses and like no one can reinvent the theory of, of evolution by natural selection, right? Like we're just not really going to get something that magnificent and explanatory because that's it's true, right? Like that's, that's, that's really how things work. I mean, there's all sorts of details that need to be filled in, but like at the broadest perspective, Darwin was right. And, um, and, and, and similarly, you know, for, for, for Einstein's physics and so on. But at the same time, um, it it could very well be the case that that it's more open than one thinks, and additionally, it seems very suspicious to me that we see a similar decline uh, of of genius outside fields that seem, what might say, directly mineable. Like, who is a living uh, equal to Tolstoy, and and I don't mean in terms of like his ob- the objective aesthetics of Tolstoy somehow being better. I mean, like, who is that famous? Like, like what writer is, so, is inspiring um, Gandhi's non-violence movements and Martin Luther King, all, all of that stuff um, owes direct homage to Tolstoy's work. Um, you know, Tolstoy was a huge, one of the early proponents of pacifism and true Christianity, and he had enormous intellectual influence. And he died at the time of his death you know, it was a it was a national mourning, right? Um, this is in 1910, I think that he dies. So, um, you know, he's being chased by like the paparazzi trying to get away on get away from his wife on a train. That's when that's when he died. Um, but he, you know, if if you think about like like if, if Jonathan Franzen, maybe the world's you know most successful contemporary sort of literary novelist, let's let's use him as an example. And uh, and I like Jonathan Franzen's work, right? This is not a dig at Jonathan Franzen at all, but there is no sense in which if Jonathan Franzen died, it would be equivalent to Tolstoy dying, right? Um, And it seems as if like fiction just doesn't seem sort of mineable in the same way Um, to to me. Like it seems as if like this is a this is a field in which there shouldn't necessarily have to be a decline like that. Um, and, you know, the same can be said for music and for all these other forms. So the reason why I don't think that the entire effect of sort of the lack of contemporary geniuses can be explained by things like ideas are getting harder to find is just that it would be an incredible coincidence if things in sort of literature or so on were, were mineable in exactly the same way as science and saw the same declines at around the exact same time and so on. I, I you know Tol- Tolstoy, Tolstoy being a great example of someone who was you know an aristocrat who he, he was a baron basically
0: yeah it's the the fiction and music parts of this are kind of interesting to me because um, I noticed in your piece you you sort of slid those examples in uh, beside the scientific ones and so so did um, so Scott Alexander wrote kind of a, a critical response to your original article uh, which you then followed up with. And I thought it was a very interesting exchange, but I noticed both of you kind of used these examples of fiction and music. And, you know, I, I would not have inherently thought that those were categorically equivalent because obviously, you know, I, I guess the distinction with something like fiction, um, like even very narrowly defined, like let's say we're just talking about novels, because what we're doing there is coming up with stories. Like it, it's not a matter of of kind of finding... Facts about a field of empirical knowledge, right? It's it's like let's push this format and and you know you, you can kind of have like more or less formalism. You can have unreliable narrators. Like th- there's a lot of experimentation, and maybe maybe it's um it's possible for you know that to get exhausted and become kind of less interesting over time. But you see what I mean, right? It, it's not kind of this empirical fact finding thing. So is um that but that might be an argument for why it is this kind of genius quality that we're looking at because like if if you thought that the problem was simply that um there you know the the kind of discoverable empirical knowledge was running out then uh, and i think right this is the argument that scott made well in in music uh personalized tutoring with geniuses is still an extremely common practice uh, and yet yeah, yeah, it... that's the,
1: I I think that that's untrue. Right. And, and so, you, do you want to just want
0: to yeah. explain your your disagreement there uh, briefly?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, so overall, I mean, my 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 disagreements with Scott are is that one, um, I think tutoring was more common than he seems to seems to think it is. And um, as an example of that, he you know he lists uh, a couple people as not being tutored, who actually, like, absolutely were and absolutely count as being tutored. Like, one of his examples was Mozart, um, who was very famously tutored one-on-one by his father, who was also a famous musician from the earliest age, and whose father's relationship has been described as obsessive. His father was also had made all his money as a private tutor for aristocrats, right? So... I don't think that these sort of examples are good examples of people who didn't undergo aristocratic tutoring. Um, but it, the, the, the second thing is just to what degree does this effect exist um, compared to ideas are getting harder to find, and that I think I'm much more I'm much more open to sort of I I, I don't have any sort of firm way of saying that oh this is the predominant effect of why we see the decline versus this is a substantial effect, right? It seems to me that education is the only thing we can actually control. So it's kind of the most interesting factor, even if it was 40% of the decline. So even if it was not, not the majority, it would still be the most interesting factor because it's the only thing that we can control. We can't control that ideas are getting harder to find. Um, and then finally, Scott sort of brings up that well, there's still like tutoring in, in some various places, right? And one is which one is in, is in music, and here's where it's different. So in uh, actually, he had a, a commenter reply that they are uh, a music teacher and that and and tutor, and that they don't see um, tutoring of composition. So, like, no one does that anymore. They they do tutoring of, yeah, you you, you do like a you do like a, here's here's how you learn the violin, and it's incredibly successful. Um, you know, I mean, Scott Alexander's brother, I think, um, he talked about this in some other piece. Um, was young and was showed some talent for music, and then they they had a very famous you know jazz musician tutor. Uh, Scott's brother and now Scott's brother is an incredibly successful musician Um, so it's like a classic case almost of aristocratic tutoring in that sense Um, and I think Scott thinks that that's perhaps common um, or much common enough that it should sort of counteract uh, this and and I really don't think that that's true I think that there are only a couple fields in which you really still see various serious tutoring about sort of pushing the boundaries and those are cases like chess, right? So every world champion in chess is tutored by one-on-one people. Um, and chess has been, guess what? Breaking, breaking boundaries consistently historically, right? So Magnus Carlsen is the best chess player who's ever lived. He would wipe the floor with Kasparov. You know, he'd, he'd wipe the floor with, like Bobby Fischer would be a joke a joke next to, to Magnus Carlsen, right? Um, so, um, and then uh, I think another example would be in sports um, where at the elite level, you know, like like all the Olympians and so on, they all have coaches, right? We call them coaches uh, there, but the people are coached. Yep. And then guess what, in those instances, they're breaking records again and again, right? Like people now are the fastest they've ever been, right? Uh, every physical record is broken like every year consistently. So these fields, the fields where there really is like very strong evidence for, for tutoring, not sort of like, I think maybe somewhere out there in homeschooling, people are doing this, but I don't have evidence for it. More like the things that are, that we, we really know for a fact that people do, you know, all, coaching through sports. We really know for a fact that everyone who's big in chess was was tutored these sort of cases you're just still making what we described as gains right you're you you have not slowed down in terms of the gains so i i think that um you know the number of people who and and by the way like scott and i had a nice interaction where we we basically landed pretty close to one another on the same page where you know he was like maybe i'm like sort of overestimating how how common it is uh in terms of aristocratic tutoring among the homeschooled uh, because for example, I've had tutors reach out to me and just say like, no one does this, like no one asked for this. Um, you know, it, it's very rare.
0: Yeah. I mean, definitely I, I don't, I mean, I, you know, I, I was not personally homeschooled, but I know a number of people who were from, you know, vi- every background from like religious homeschooling to kind of like weird, smart people who, who thought that they could do a better job and, almost none of them you know there are curricula and you do them at home right and and you're still using textbooks and you know at best maybe you have like supplemental tutoring of the sort we also see in schools but effectively you're doing classroom learning at home right it's not a substantially different form of education and you know to to the extent that there are advantages it's it's in something like you know you're not locked in the classroom for specifically six hours a day or you can focus more on something you have real interest in but the method of learning per se is not that different and uh, you know I, I and i guess just just to maybe um shore up the the previous point uh, that i was making about um music and fiction is like there are interesting examples i think for strengthening the case that there is this actual like decreasing number of geniuses because um they do not depend on uh you know, exhausting a field of empirical knowledge, right? So I, I think that, and if, even the sports thing, I think those are, those are very good examples to use. And I, I, I guess it might be interesting here is like some of the, uh, I, you know, we've identified something like a correlation here, right? This system of learning seems to produce um, geniuses uh, and and even just, you know, generally more functionally smart people doing good work. And I I'd be interested to hear in the causative side of that. You know, what what do you think? Like we've kind of gestured a bit at, you know, oh they get to learn from people doing good work in their fields, but um do you, do you have kind of like a deeper theory of like, you know, what is the structural advantage that they're getting there?
1: Yeah, so there's there's two effects, I think. Um and I'll, I'll outline them here. At some point I would like to do a, a future post post about this. But I'll just say them here because I think you asked you asked the right question, um, which is where does this effect come from? And you know, for, for one, we have these results showing just that tutoring is is much more successful for like test taking, right? So so people so, so tutoring is just fundamentally more successful in terms of um, in terms of like producing higher test scores or so on. And that's just that uh, you know, obviously you can you can uh, help a student memorize or, do, or, or understand something much better one-on-one than you can write in a lecture, right? So you have this, this dynamic feedback nature, which is sort of like, we can think of this as like a short-term or local performance boost, wherein you know, you're know, you just, if, if you need to help like a young student understand Pythagorean's theorem, you can kind of show them in a couple different ways and maybe one of those ways will work well for them, but it wouldn't work well for, for somebody else. Right, so you have this individualized nature of it that I think automatically makes it like more successful. But one could argue then that, well, wait a minute, but all you're really doing is saying that, you know, maybe these, these tutor kids learn a bit more, but does that really like translate sort of into genius into intellectual accomplishment, right? And so that's where I think the second part of aristocratic tutoring comes in, which is, which is uh, I call it the peer replacement theory. And the idea is is that um, students are replacing who they think of their peers at a social level with intellectuals. And it's making intellectual life social for them. It's it's meshing them in part of this intellectual world. People who read a lot of books when they're young experience something like this because they think of the authors as, as some form of peers. And if you look at the current education literature, and you look at like the more uh, reductionist sort of approaches that are saying that, you know, maybe education doesn't have a huge amount of an effect. Uh, maybe parental styles don't have a huge amount of an effect. What they still continue to say has a huge amount of an effect is peer group of the kid. So, right, if your kid is kind of hanging out in a bad crowd when they're 10, that translates into sort of lifelong uh, issues because, you um, It's just for something about the peer group is super important for for, for kids and learning. And so I think that what's happening with aristocratic tutoring and what we don't do now, uh, like at a really deep level, like why it's good at producing geniuses, not just like people who are, you know, know more about physics or something. Right. Uh, Is that it replaces their peers with these aristocratic tutors who are, um, you know, erudite and intellectual and interested in these topics and that sparks uh the 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 child's sort of interest and 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 reconfigures their set of social relationships about who's worth paying attention to to be like uh to be extremely oriented towards intellectualism towards science science or you know to the people that they're reading or something like that and so these kids replace who they think of as their peers, and that stays with them through their whole life.
0: So that seems interesting, even for thinking about how knowledge advances, because, you know, you're mentioning that books create an equivalent of this kind of, but there's something that I notice with, um, like, the effect where you learn, where you read great books by people you don't really meet, is that it's very easy to fall into this sort of romanticism or this cult of the author right and and you know the i guess a famous example of this right is the way that um people in the renaissance and the early modern era used to read the you know the greek and roman classics right like there are these great masters who couldn't really be equaled but in in the case where it's actually a personal relationship i think it it's not just that they're a peer, but I think it also concretizes the idea that the student can surpass the teacher, right? Because, I mean, that's sort of, right, the 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 apex, right, of having the successful student is that they actually surpass you in your work. And it, it, to, to give an example of this, uh, as you were mentioning Russell earlier, uh, it seems like it would be Wittgenstein, right? Because Wittgenstein comes in you know, writes his tractatus and then, you know, self-refutes his tractatus and all, all of this. But the relationship with Russell is interesting because they're, they are peers and they give each other a lot of support. But I think very clearly Wittgenstein and Russell, I think even, sort of see Wittgenstein as having thoroughly surpassed the previous generation of philosophers, right? And and he 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 gets brought into the university almost in this, you know, this like wink and a nudge like pseudo-defense of his work that he's already written. And and you know, they it's 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 clearly being he's being brought in because of the social respect that his mentors had for him, but then also the recognition that he seemed to have like in some sense broken past or, you know, created a new paradigm for for doing the same kind of work. And if, if that social element allows new ideas to be updating knowledge, like almost by definition is an, this weird new idea forms outside and kind of breaks its way in somehow. And if what we're talking about here is people doing work together, then the, the sort of efficient cause of that has to be people recognizing, you know, rising geniuses, I guess, as having done that right? And integrating their work and being like, yes, this is a good advancement. And, you know, just on a social level, it seems more likely that people with these very personal bonds of mutual respect are going to be more open to integrating those ideas than, you know, academics in a modern environment where it's viewed as competition for jobs and prestige, and there is really no personal relationship at all, and maybe not even a professional relationship. Um, So that's an interesting...
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I... I think the you're you're absolutely spot on. Uh, I think the most dangerous thing for an intellectual field is for it to stop being social. And we see this looking back that like like things were just taken extremely seriously and sort of intellectual life was not thought of as like this this thing that lives inside of bureaucracy. The bureaucracy was totally in service of the intellectual life. And as an example of that as a great example of that if we look at Alfred North Whitehead, um, who, um, who faked a grade for Bertrand Russell to, so that Bertrand Russell would get a better scholarship, uh, and get the scholarship than this other kid who tested higher than him. Um, and Alfred North Whitehead had met both. And, uh, he, he was, he was sure certain that Russell was the greater genius. And so he he fudged he, he fudged the numbers. Um, he like he like burned one student's test or something, right? And um, we, you know, you, you can kind of sort of argue about the, the the morality of that, but certainly you have to admit that no teacher living today would ever take sort of the intellectual life of a student so seriously, uh, or intellectual life at all so seriously that they'd be willing to like burn like a student's notes to sort of get right. their favorite student pass like it would just it would be unimaginable right in the current system for someone to care that much even and so you have to sort of ask well what's what's going on like if if people not not saying that people should do that now but if it's but if that is so alien now then that's for a reason something has something has has declined and, you know, I'll, I'll give my like, you know, this is sort of the most the most black pill take take on all of this, right, which is that um, most of the systems that we really hold dear and value were just things that aristocrats put together. Yeah, um, yeah, including science, right, like the entire scientific process with its sort of high minded rationalistic debates is extremely aristocratic in its initial conception and now there are the rich but there's no longer really aristocrats um and, and i think we have to be careful about this I, I think those two two things are actually quite different and so you like like mark zuckerberg wears sweatpants to work right so <laughs> things things have changed right um, yeah i mean and... the, the
0: thing is that the rich are often like they have the same risk aversions that you find everywhere, right? It's it's actually seems fairly rare to me to find like you know there's the concept of like fu money, right? Like you're gonna become rich enough and then you're gonna start doing like the, the, these kind of weirder or more interesting things. But I I actually think this almost never happens.
1: Yeah, no one ever does it. It's 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 remarkable, right? Um, the and, I, and I'm not saying that I, you know, strongly believe in this sort of. Black-pilled view, or and again, I don't want to be confusing it an is and it an not, but like, it, it could very well be the case that we're basically living in the shadows of an aristocracy across a host of, of domains and institutions that the aristocrats sort of set up and they run in this sort of, you might call it the aristocratic style, which is sort of like effete and like hands-off and super rationalistic and sort of, you know, it's all based effectively things that people would do like at fancy dinner parties. Right. And
0: right. Yeah. Like, because you're, you actually have that sense, right? Where a lot of the way a lot of this works is that people are doing work. And then it's almost like, uh, you know, maybe I'm pushing it a little bit, but you do this work because, you know, the next time you come to your, your Royal Society dinner or something, (laughs) you want to be able to like give a really cool account of, uh, the the thing you've been working on right yeah that's it is social in that way right in this very day-to-day familiar way
1: absolutely and i think that that carries on like into the sciences i think that that's the function of conferences and i think conferences are one reason why science continues to be really successful i mean i i i would bet that if you looked at fields of sort of inquiry like broadly and you looked at the ones that had a lot of sort of conferences, like t- times where people are going to get together and have the social interactions, that they progress a lot quicker and with a lot more motivation because humans beings are social creatures and, and we can't we can't really pretend otherwise. Um, and again, I don't really believe this sort of black pilled everything is just in the shadows of the aristocracy, but I think it's kind of interesting. I haven't really seen it articulated. Mm. It's a
0: provocative stance. Uh, yeah. yeah you you made this point about the conferences and I think it's an interesting one and I suspect it's probably true to a degree. That being said, I mean, you know, I've attended conferences like this myself. I have, you know, friends in academia and it's, the mode of these conferences definitely still seems to be professional colleagues, let's call it, right? Like that's the script people are following. And, you know, I'm sure this varies sort of by field. It doesn't quite approach working group levels. And it also does not approach this kind of, you know, you could call it aristocratic friendship sort of dynamic. And I'm interested to hear if there's any fields you know of that actually do keep a significant degree of this very social style of doing work.
1: I actually think, as, as weird as this may sound, I think that mathematics is probably still a case where people working, particularly within specific subfields, everybody knows everybody else, People have interacted a lot. You don't think of mathematicians as the most social creatures, right? Which is why this sounds kind of paradoxical. Right. But um, people are very aware of it. mathematics is very much based around of like who did what proof, right? And so people, it's extremely socially based, right? And then the, it also doesn't have large teams. I mean, more so now than it used to, but compared to biology or something, right? Um, not at all. And so, so I think that there are still sort of scientific disciplines wherein they, they, they remain sort of more tight-knit and sort of, um, can one might call it like, um, I'm trying to think of a better term than tight-knit, so, sort of like, like clustered in a certain way um, socially. And so I, th- I think mathematics is a great example of that. And then mathematics is one of the few things that I would say it doesn't seem progress has slowed down as much compared to some other fields. And again, that's probably because, you know, the whole PhD system of working with someone and working through proofs and working very closely with an advisor and so on uh, keeps keeps things keeps things going. But I think that there's a real danger of sort of letting the bureaucracies of academia slip into bureaucratic mode and you know, and, and everything just becomes sort of in service of that, and we forget that the whole point of these, these universities was to keep the life of the mind going right it's to provide a good place for them. Um, and it seems very much, you know, the the opposite now where again, you just you would never think to, to sort of try to rejig the system to to favor a student who you thought might make a serious intellectual contribution.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there's even a, you know, on the on the economic side of this, right, the the degree to which uh, if if you're a young academic, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're often going to be in, in this like financially precarious position. And obviously, lots of academics have to take other jobs and stuff like that, especially when they're starting out, which also means that it is now time wise harder to participate in like a lot of social life in in the academy. So if you think of that as being the prime function of the academy then uh, it's it's actually undermining the core purpose in a a sense now obviously there's there's a lot more demand let's say for those positions so i i don't think that it's actually just a matter of like rejiggering this or that element of academic life i it you know I'm, i'm sort of suspicious usually that you can um easily reform systems with that much political capital invested in maintaining the current state um, but that being said for for people and I do know people who you know participate in you know ver- various kinds of working groups of this kind um, in in different fields it's it's I think it's good I mean sometimes this happens naturally, but having that social element be this very explicit concept of how these communities function seems important
1: yeah I, I agree. I mean you know and I, when I write about issues like this, I almost never you know want to end with, some sort of recommendation, because generally the, the subjects are quite complex. Like with the aristocratic tutoring, I certainly am not recommending that, that, that people go out and do it or that uh, the world should be changed in such a way that people should do it more. But I do think that in some cases, it might be worth pursuing. Like certainly writing this has changed how I think about my own children and their education um and and i've seen sort of some ways in which people go about doing it because one of the main one of the main ways is of course you have a family member do it um like virginia wolf is a great example of this again famous novelist she gets tutored in english literature by her father for for years and years right um in a very intense way so Um, you know, oftentimes it's the family members stepping in to do this. And this is still done very occasionally. Um, And the only case I really know of lately is Brian Kaplan, um, who is an education researcher and who uh, tutored his children uh, via homeschooling. And he made an interesting point, first of all, which is that um, no one... no one in the college admission system cares what a kid was doing before ninth grade. It just doesn't show up. Like, like their records don't matter. They don't get carried over. Colleges don't see them. So nothing that can impact the college's decision, um, can occur before ninth grade. So you really do have complete freedom, uh, as a parent prior to ninth grade. Um, and, and he, Home, homeschooled his his kids and they were often doing very advanced coursework and then you know guess what uh i, th- I think they both ended up at Van- vanderbilt i think there were twins that he was doing this with and then they also have like their own economics podcast that they started when they were like teenagers right so like you could you can debate like okay that, that's it's not einstein right but that's that's incredibly successful right like we would, we would i'm sure many of us would love if our 17 year olds you know we're starting economics podcasts uh rather than you know doing whatever 17 year olds do now-hmm I I think um
0: maybe in the this because we're kind of moving to the last section here of the discussion and I think it would be interesting here to actually push a little bit on this shadow of the aristocracy idea um I, I think it's sort of an, an interesting frame for this because you know there's there's definitely the sense I would say, right, that what we could think of as high modernity seems to be in the past, right at at least right now and and you know what what is what is that time period? Maybe it's like eighteen fifty to nineteen fifty Um I've heard people you know throw around nineteen seventy three is the year when everything stops working somehow. um so you can kind of move these years around. but there's definitely this period when the modern fields of knowledge and modern technology and modern institutions all seem to really explode and get built in this period of about a hundred years. And, you know, that's, that's, when we think of aristocracy here, we don't usually think of it as being, you know, a, a, a modern or even a modernizing force. But that's actually wrong, right? Because in the 19th century, and even before that, right, industrial revolution kicks off with the enclosure of the commons. It's aristocratic families who are, Basically seizing property and leveraging it into the industrial process, um, you know. In we we kind of talked a bit about the IQ thing earlier. Uh, I I haven't looked at these deeply, but you know you see these studies go around sometimes where oh IQ has been declining in the Western countries since the Victorian era, and you know people will throw around various theories about this. Like is it is it the plastics or, or you know these various things? But overall, there there seems to be this this general sense that like some like vital energy or something that that was creating the modern world has has sort of died down or maybe even died away and i think that that's obviously that's something that's hard to study in a very quantitative sense and so what i find interesting about your essay here and the the models you're putting forward is that it's actually getting us to look at a very measurable practice like maybe not quantitatively but at least you know socially you know dig up right dig up the letters from from mothers and from children you know what are their daily lives like i think it is something that we can we can try and like reconstruct fairly well uh, the degree to which that practice was going on um and 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 i think you know you're right it is it is this kind of it is this aristocratic practice and so that implies that this there is this class which, you know, contributes disproportionately to building the modern world. And in fact, a class we don't often think of as being, you know, maybe even think of them as being an anti-modern force. Um, so so I, I think this is interesting. And I, I guess I, I would be interested to hear first, what do you think defines the social role of an aristocracy? Like, if you have some broader idea of what that looks like, and then, you know, is does such an equivalent class even exist in our society?
1: Yeah, I, I would say we definitely don't have anything that resembled the aristocracy that was. Um, and a simple example of this, actually, that someone pointed out, right, was that when, when it comes to, like, why don't people do aristocratic tutoring with their kids anymore, uh, a big answer is just that, that, that people will give, even when they're given the, if you said, oh, would, here's the option to do it, is because the, the, the child wouldn't have sort of anyone to relate to. They would be so separated by their experiences um, that it's almost, you could almost argue it's like cruel to a certain degree. Um, I don't think that that's quite true, but, uh, but, but one could kind of see how you could make an argument like that. Um, versus if you did aristocratic tutoring, you know, in 1700s, all the people that the kid is going to hang out with had the same method of education. It's a method so, of
0: gaining, like, social status and acceptance, right? If you have the best tutors and if then you do the best work. Uh, like, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I hate to overuse the term legible, but it's, it's a recognized form of achievement in a social circle. And you get rewarded for it in a very personal way. Yeah,
1: and I think that that's an example of like there's there are there are some you know classes of people in the contemporary world such that you know if you if you don't send your kids to Philip, Philip Exeter uh, you know then uh, you know that that that's sort of their their peer group. So there is like there is an upper class for certain uh, that's still around in America. I don't think anyone can, can possibly deny that. But I don't think that there's really an aristocracy. And I think that, you know, I mean, the aristocracy had some horrible aspects to it, right? <laughs> right? Like a- absolutely horrible aspects to it, but it also had some, some good aspects to it. And I think a lot of the institutions are set up in such a way that they mimic some of these, these good aspects, but it's kind of funny because it means that we're living in a world which was built by these aristocratic traditions and, and often by aristocrats like Lord Kelvin right um and and yet we we sort of don't have them anymore and and i i give this example within the essay of um you know if i had to name the two greatest geniuses of the 20th century i would name john von neumann and and bertrand russell and both were essentially aristocrats like they were aristocratic in their behavior vaughn is a title Um, you know, both very rich, both very well-educated, raised by governesses and given tutors since they were very young age, right? Um, and yeah, it's like, like, you know, von Neumann goes through like a more traditional school system with some of the best mathematics teachers ever, um, just given how many kids of, of that era and age ended up, you know, contributing a lot, often who went to the same schools. Um, but still you know essentially if we if we if we met them nowadays if you met john von neumann you'd be like that that is an aristocrat <laughs> um, they would feel aristocratic to you right they would feel completely different same with bertrand russell you know smoking his pipe in his tweed coat right? right like
0: well even the rhetoric right the way of writing and speaking there there's like an identifiable tradition there uh which you know today is, you know, the, I mean, obviously we have writing styles, right? we have op-ed writing styles and so on, but um, they are certainly not as cultivated, let's say, as, uh, you know, some of these mid-century guys were still, the style that they were still writing in.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's a good example too, by the way. I mean, it, you know, it's it just, it's a simple fact that, you know, William James is writing in a very different way than Steven Pinker is writing. And William James is 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 more difficult to understand, but but his language is much richer and, and more interesting. And so if you just think about like, okay, so who is William James's audience, right? It seems seems very unlikely to me that past literature would be so much more cognitively demanding, but that everyone's cognitive level was exactly the same right as it is today yeah it's like yeah. W- wait a minute but like h- how could that possibly be the case right like how could you really have william james writing these huge books that 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 go on and do well right um or you know henry his his brother right a great example of like a very uh, precise novelist but like novelists nowadays they don't have that sort of linguistic flourish they don't have that sort of vocabulary uh there you could you could argue again that like there's a a beauty and simplicity so i'm certainly not denying anything like that or even saying that it was better but it's just that there was a certain expectation that the people that they were writing to were incredibly well educated
0: well you can even you know i think you see pretty often very complex writing like complex writing today is complex because it uses a high degree of insider language and jargon but not because it has sort of a, a, a cognitively demanding level of communicating ideas where if you, if i think of like modern english right there's this period from something like uh, you know roughly like hobbes to carlisle or something and and that's sort of where a lot of the great modern english language literature especially gets gets written in that period and you know you have like the romantic movement and stuff like that happening in that period um i think you're right it's uh there there is an assumption and it's down to the level of of you know when you communicate like if, if you read a poet you know if you read byron or someone right they're drawing these classical references but it's not in where today you would read that and people you know people are just kind of trying to signal a certain kind of like intellectual cachet to you whereas in these older versions, it's actually just an assumption that most of his readers will understand these references, and so he can like play with characters or themes, right? There's it's 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 uh I mean not not that you don't have pretentious writing from that period, but the the markers of pretentiousness are are kind of different, um, be, because deep immersion in a particular intellectual tradition or literary tradition is not itself. A sign of pretentiousness right that doesn't work when everyone has sort of read ovid or uh, the king james bible or something like that
1: yeah no i think you're i think you're absolutely correct i mean my my favorite example of this is someone like melville um where if, if you read moby dick and you don't have a good knowledge of the bible you're missing like half the references right? but he just he just right, expects yeah right? That his reader is going to be able to get biblical illusions. Right. But, um, you know, like how, how many people now know that Ishmael means God listens, right? The calm, call me Ishmael, right. Or that in the Bible, Ishmael wanders the desert and then is like miraculously saved from dying of thirst. And, and Melville's Ishmael, of course, has the opposite happened to him where he's, he's shipwrecked and he ends up in basically clinging to a casket. So he's, he's surrounded by water, right?
0: Yeah. The there's an iron. Yeah, exactly. So
1: it's, it's, it's a cosmic inversion of the elements right for the different Ishmael's, but it's like who, 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 who would ever get that now? Like, I mean, effectively no reader. So there's a sense in which speaking of paradigm shifts, there's a sense in which you sense in which you have artistic incommensurability in the same way that you have scientific, um and 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 in that sense it's like you know th- this is the standard thing when a paradigm shifts happens like previous results don't really uh don't really have as much meaning anymore it's not they weren't even wrong right they're just like not even interpretable in the new scientific framework right and so similarly i think you know when culture changes it enough or you have something really big happen like the decline of religion or the decline of aristocracy it becomes very difficult to really parse what these people were saying because we're just so alien in terms of what our references is gonna are going to be.
0: Well, and that seems like the, you know, because we were talking about like, what are the causes here? Passing on, you know, not just formal knowledge, but that the tacit knowledge side of it seems to be one of the major causes of why that kind of relationship is going to be more fruitful and you know i was using the industrial example earlier and i think that's that's actually in a way more than because in literature you know to use the moby dick example the king james bible or something like that is obviously something that people are still going to be learning in a fairly formalized way but you look at industrial science right and you know you read the works written by some of the 20th century industrialists and they're 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 talking about they're working on production lines or they're working in labs and the realizations they get they only come up with because they have this sort of deep familiarity with the process of uh you know how textiles or how vehicles are produced and that you know they they would not have thought to do um to, you know uh, oh let's let's just increase the scale or let's standardize these parts of the line like the, these are things you only learn uh, through practice. Right. And, you know, I think earlier you were talking about, um, things like, you know, how do you communicate an idea clearly or, uh, what, or, or laboratory work, right? Uh, like early, early laboratory work was so kind of unstandardized and wide ranging. You were only going to learn it by kind of apprenticing, or at least by cooperating with people. And, you know, this, this I think is one of the big, you know, things, I won't say failings, but things that um, the kind of personalized course format is just never going to have, because even having a bunch of lectures from master of some particular field, you're not going to be doing daily work with that person, right? You're not going to pick up on their the habits that they have of reading or of, uh, you know, how they run like a workshop or something like that. That's just not going to happen. But that's actually one of the most important forms of knowledge. And it can't be, you know, it, it, it almost by definition, you can't teach it legibly. You have to pick up the habits. You have to have exposure to the environment. And uh, I mean, I'd be interested to hear if you've if that's kind of an aspect of this that you've been thinking about since writing the, the yeah, original Yeah, I think piece. that,
1: you know, w- w- one thing that strikes me is that there's still essentially reliance on aspects of tutoring, when it comes to apprenticeships um, throughout the modern world and really where things get quite tough, you people rely more and more on this sort of one on one relationships and I think, just going back to what I think is the best example, which is uh, graduate school, which is one of the few times where like a young scientist will work with an older scientist and that's really where you're supposed to learn how to do science. You do not learn it in an undergraduate, you learn it in graduate school. And you do that by spending significant periods of time with, with, a, with a very good scientist. And so you learn their methods, you learn how they do things, you learn how papers are put together. And this is, you know, what the entire enterprise is based on. So, I mean, one thing that's t- to me that's that's interesting is sort of tracking down instances of tutoring in the modern world where we don't really think of it as tutoring, but um, but but they 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 seem like they crop up more in places where you actually still really need to have some sort of, uh, you know, intellectual engine that's still running in order to advance this thing.
0: Mm-hmm. I think. Um you know just just maybe ending this train of thought on on how all of this manifests in the the modern university you know one one i think of my favorite pieces that we have published on that cultural aspect is uh a piece by our uh, a writer of our saffron wang called harvard creates managers instead of elites uh, also released in one of our print editions um And, you know, one of the points of discussion that arose there is that in Harvard, you know, in elite universities, you still have a lot of people coming from families where, in terms of pure economics, right, in terms of familial wealth or something like that, they're wealthy enough where you could imagine families... Uh, structuring education differently, or 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 even things like heirs not doing a normal career path, but just like leveraging, you know, trying trying to make their fortune in some unusual way. But what seems to happen, especially on the undergrad level, uh, is a, a, a conditioning into a familiar career path. Right. So uh, you you have people go to conferences and you know they want to they come out wanting to work for McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or whoever even even when they don't need to right and it's kind of like these are careers that one would think it's like someone who comes from a maybe a middle class or a a working class family and wants to become wealthy that this is a career that sort of makes sense because you can make a lot of money but what you in fact see is people from wealthy families also want those careers and sort of the the takeaway there is like, the the upper middle class values have, in a weird way, colonized the upper class, you know, from a bottom-up direction. And that's a really weird and surprising scenario because, you know, being in the pressure cooker is not a pleasant experience. There's no inherent reason why you'd want to do that stuff. And yet, kind of, here here we seem to be. Um, I mean, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on that. And I'd be interested to hear if you think it's possible to create like different, significantly different cultural spaces for people who don't actually want to participate in the, you know, the the current model of, of
1: how yeah, education. Yeah, ab- and... absolutely. I think that, you know, one, we are in an age where there is going to be an opportunity at some point to construct some sort of next system of what education is going to look like. We we still have not sort of figured out um, the best usage of the internet. I know that we were saying that, um, you know, something like aristocratic tutoring is done sort of socially, uh, but there's nothing that really necessarily prevents it from from being online um, and still one-on-one and so on. Um, and I think that at some point in the next, Ten years, twenty years—the the the college bubble just has to burst. And speaking as someone who I do not actually teach students, um, I'm just I'm a research professor. But um, you know, I mean, I know many people who teach students and so on, and they do speak of this malaise, particularly malaise that occurred around COVID. Um, and fr- frankly, at this point, kids, you know, c- kids are like not coming to classes or uh, just just sort of like barely interacting. They're barely there, and. You know, there are also people who are paying eighty thousand dollars a year to go to these uh, to these universities. So you have to think that at some point like the, the the bubble has to burst. But I've been thinking that the bubble has to burst for five to ten years now, right? So it's like it could go for another thirty years, like who 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 knows? But I do think at some point something has to come next. And I think what comes next is something much more individualized and i think that actually that will be a good mm, thing.
0: Yeah, i i generally uh i'm i'm suspicious of the notion that a th- uh, a thing that's kind of still as invested in as as our education system is going to just somehow collapse. I don't i i think that it is actually just possible to have, you know, the the sort of apex predator in the environment be extremely terrible if if there's nothing better. And so that's, you know, personally i think it's more interesting to look at people who are actually trying to figure out um a different method that has actually structural competitive advantages um and i mean you know i i don't personally i can't point at anything that has really solved that problem yet i i have definitely seen you know if i think of people who participate in functional working groups i think you're right often there there is an online component at least people meet online often they will publish stuff online i do think that eventually what you see is people having to, at minimum, move a lot of that work into like a sort of private space, digital or otherwise, and honestly, at maximum, collocate co-loca- in the same cities and stuff. Like I, I do think uh, you know we haven't really touched on this in this uh, in this episode, but you know there's a geographic component to this where it's like London, Paris, Vienna, New York, you know, you 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 Cambridge, right? Cambridge and Oxford you get a lot of these people literally being long-term physical neighbors with each other. And, uh, you know, obviously that that has a huge social component to it. And I I personally suspect that the internet will not negate the need for that, like, very personal level of cooperation. Um, but I think you're right. I, I haven't really seen anyone solve this problem yet. No, uh,
1: but but I do think that the, the internet has to be some sort of it, it is uh, something that breaks down gatekeeping, you know, like, uh, uh, again, like I get so much more out of writing online, in terms of the feedback and excitement. Just in the past, you know, I only started the intrinsic perspective, like 10 months ago or something. Um, and, you know, I get I get notes about it every day versus I published a book nationwide last year, right? And, you know, it it was in every Barnes and Noble, right? But the amount of sort of feedback and excitement and interest that I got was nowhere close to that. Um, And so I think that that, to me, speaks to um, that, you know, if, if, if you want to begin to break down some of these barriers, these gateways, right? Because, of course, with the book publishing, it all depends on this huge system of like agents and then editors and book reviewers and things have to come out at the right time and get the right profiles in the right magazines, you know, and so on. And you can just sort of sidestep all of that by like starting your own Substack or, or writing your own blog or starting a newsletter um, or doing something else online where it's like much more, much more sort of obvious. So, and I think that that, that thrust has to end up impacting uh, education itself at some point. It has to be very obvious. Like, I, I, I rarely look at credentials now anymore, and they've they've ceased to impress me to any degree, right? Um, I just kind of want to see what you've done and what's interesting that you've said or thought about or written or or coded or what have you, whatever sort of whatever the field is.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree with that. You know, I, I sometimes say our, a lot of our best pieces have been written by you know, high school and college dropouts who just went to, you know, some weird part of the world and decided to write about what they saw, uh, whereas, you know, I, I would get a similar piece from a very well-credentialed person, and the thing is so overhedged and abstruse as to be basically useless for learning things from. So I, I definitely think that, you know, that, that clarity and all these other aspects, um, that's definitely the thing I look at as well um well i think we're uh, about at the end of our time here eric but uh, i this was a great discussion i think we got through a lot here uh and i'm looking forward to seeing where you take uh this and the other stuff you're looking at uh in your writing
1: yeah absolutely it was a it was a lot of fun thank you so much
0: okay uh and thanks everyone for joining us uh if you're interested in receiving our print editions, uh, which I refer to in the podcast, you can get that information at palladiumag.com slash subscribe. And uh, if you want to read Eric's uh, substack or sign up for it, the URL for that is Uh Thanks, again, Eric, and we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye for now.